if you will turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26, let us hear, beginning at verse 36 down to uh, verse 46. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And so he said to them, so he left them and went away and prayed the third time, saying the same words. And then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is, going, is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. As heaven and earth will pass away, we know that God's word shall never pass away. Uh, it shall endure forever. May he bless this word to us. The struggles of prayer. Uh, I do emphasize this a lot because uh, I, I speculate, I know this is a bit of speculation, but I think it's, it's uh, probably very accurate speculation, that like me, many of you struggle in your prayer lives, many of you have struggled in your prayer lives, and that devotion of time to the Lord, both in that private closet of your own life, and in community with your family and in community with the church. I've often heard people express this sentiment that, uh, well, I do pray, it's just when I'm with other people, I find it really hard to pray and really hard to know what to pray and what to say and uh, I just uh, stumble and, and fumble with my words and that's why uh, when I'm with other people I'm silent and and then I hear other people who say, you know, when I start remembering and praying for someone or something, I just don't know how to fill in the prayer and how to make it a prayer that makes sense and, and actually deals with things that are needed. And, and in those ways, those struggles are real. Uh, but perhaps the, the greater struggle is we, in all sincerity, don't necessarily pick the most opportune times to prayer, pray. And uh, like Peter, James, and John, and I would speculate the other disciples as well, 
that in the late and evening hours we begin with a desire to pray to the Lord, but we find ourselves falling asleep in the midst of it and our prayers uh, don't always uh, find themselves being accomplished. Those are just some of the minor struggles to pray. But they are struggles that all of us have. And I chose this section not just simply to address the problems of our prayer, but for us to as well consider the prayer life of our Lord Jesus in respect of the who, what, and how of prayer. And and when we look carefully at this section, we are seeing our Lord in His humanity. Uh, we, we acknowledge the two natures of Christ. He is the very God of very God, being the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. But He is also man, and man in all that fullness of what it means to be a, a human being. Uh, and, and a man who, in coming in the flesh, uh, having taken a body of death, He took a body that was not glorified but a body like ours that was growing up and that had its, its uh, limitations as far as length of days. And, and even here he's, he expresses that. There's a sorrow in his heart that is taking him to death and he sees that that is before him. And yet, in his humanity being that sinless man, Uh, He took to Himself uh, our human nature, but He was without sin. He did not have within His heart that corruption of sin that would interfere in His relationship with the Father. And when you look at Him praying here, you see a man who is pouring out His heart in the desperate need that is before him, expressing the desires of his heart, but doing so with the knowledge that he did not want to die. (laughs) He did not want to reach out and, and lay hold of that cursed death in the sense of desiring it because he knew the implications that, that this would be the moment in his life where his communion with the Father would be broken. And he's never known that. He's never known that in his deity or his humanity. And now that's before him to experience. And and in the sorrow of his soul, knowing what his purpose is, he's saying, Father, this isn't my will. In the sense of, I don't want my communion broken with you, but I must reach out and take it because this is your will. Help me. I don't think we grasp the depth of that struggle that the Lord was faced with. Now that's the reality of what He's, he's dealing with as He prays. And, and I, I just encourage you to to open your heart to see the, the labor of prayer. I take these words literally that, that Jesus comes back to His disciples and He's been away for an hour praying. And He comes back, shakes them awake, and He looks at Peter. Peter who just a few hours earlier said, Father, uh, sorry, uh, Lord, uh, Teacher, 
if all of these men here desert you and forsake you, I want you to know I'll be by your side to the end. And that's why he doesn't name James and John. He looks and he says to Peter, you're going to be with me to the end. You couldn't even pray with me for one hour. The struggle is great. And then Jesus goes away, and I believe it to be another hour. I, and I believe the third time. Like, this is not just uh, going away ten minutes, coming back. This is the Lord and His humanity laboring in prayer. And, and it teaches us, I believe, perhaps what is the greatest struggle is that we don't know what it's necessarily like to labor in prayer and to spend that time before the, the Lord in, in, in that way, uh, of, you know, after their feast, in that way of giving up my rest to be with God. It's a hard thing. And as we look at Jesus here, we see His greatest struggle is before us. He had to embrace the greatest suffering that anyone had to endure. Now I know you're all looking and saying, but pastor, you don't know what I've been through this past week. You don't know the angst of my heart. You don't know the pains that I've had to deal with, both in my soul and in my body. You don't know the grief that is upon me. How can you say that this is the greatest suffering that anyone has ever had to endure? And we can say that because we know that what was before the Lord was that endurance of the wrath of God, the punishment of hell, that forsaken aspect in his relationship with God. The time when he would, in all of, of the, the scorn and the contempt that he endured, with not deserving it. He, he did not deserve a single ounce of suffering. But in this time and point in his earthly ministry, he knew his hour had come when he would have to endure what none of us here will ever, ever be met with. And that is the cursed judgment and wrath of God. We'll never, never comprehend that. But I, but I say that so that you will understand the Lord praying in that way that when we come to the Lord in all of our struggles and all of our sufferings and all of our dilemmas and anxieties and pains and whatever, as great as we may think they are, God is saying to us in His Word, do you realize how small they are? Both compared to the, the glory that is waiting for you. Because of what Christ has accomplished in your salvation. How small your sufferings are here on earth compared to the eternal weight of glory that is before you. When you die. When the Lord returns. But also so that we will set our sufferings in relation to Christ and to understand we really don't know the depth of suffering with sin. But our Lord does. He knows it. He knows what it is to struggle with that temptation to not do the Father's will. But in His heart, 
He was able to pray in this moment. If it is possible, let this cup pass before you. Nevertheless, not as I will. Let your will be done. Do you know how hard it is for us to pray for that when suffering comes into our lives? I've said it before, but I say it again because it bears into this point. When issues of life come into our lives, when sickness and ill health, when cancer, when grief and sorrow come in, it is so hard for us to say, Father, let your will be done. We want it gone immediately. It's too hard. And yet, as we understand the sovereignty of God, and and again, I, I say this as a preface, it's not wrong to pray for healing. It's not wrong for, for us to pray, Oh Lord, take this grief away. But in our understanding of the sovereignty of God, we know this is part of His will for us. How hard it is to pray. Your will be done. That your will be done. And you note that in, in Jesus' prayer. He, he prayed the desires of his heart to be in subjection to the Father's will. He prayed, Lord, if it's possible, take it away. Yes, take it away. That's my will. I don't know if it's your will. Let your will be done. He prayed as well. He prayed the same prayer over and over until it was clear the Father's will is happening. <laughs> he persevered in that way. He prayed in sorrow and deep distress until, and I believe this is the most important thing, he kept praying to God until his soul was at peace with the Father's will. He began in saying, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. And, and he even says that to, to uh, the Father. And yet, look how calm he is. After the third time coming back and he says, the hours at hand. The Father's will is being done. Let's go. Let's be gone. And, and I think that's one of the more essential things that, that we need to labor in in our times of suffering and hardship and, and, or when we're praying for others who are going for, through those things is to be laboring until they are at peace with the Father's will in their life. It doesn't happen like that. <laughs> it's a labor of prayer. And I submit to you that this is the true purity and righteousness uh, uh, of prayer at work before the Father. And, and in, in looking to Christ here, we can take up the, that most 
uh, important text and one that I hope you've memorized from Hebrews 4 of seeing this is the great high priest who's gone through the heavens before us and who now sits on the throne of grace at the Father's right hand who says to us, come boldly to me. I know how to sympathize with you in all of your needs and all of your suffering. So come and pour out your heart to me and I will bring you that peace and help that you need in your prayers. He went before us in prayer to that same throne to open the way for us to come and pray. Isn't that marvelous? See, this is our Lord. And and when we consider these things, and as we look uh, quickly, and it it will be quick, as we look at these catechism questions, the who, what, and how of prayer, let me say, once once you realize this, and it's not going to take you long to fill an hour of prayer before the Father. I compile and I send it out to all of you every prayer week. That, that prayer sheet that has a list of things on it. My, uh, I, I could spend limit, limitless times on some of those items. An hour praying for all our children who are outside the kingdom of God. That, that's, that's the reality that's before us. It's, it's not about how do I fill an hour of prayer. It's, it's, it becomes more about how do I get up from prayer and go to do the work that I have to do. <laughs> well, that's the way it ought to be. Uh, and, and here, these questions that we're going to look at help us with that time of prayer. The first is, who do we pray for? Now, I know many of us, uh, the who of prayer, many of us know that acronym uh, JOY. How many of you have heard that acronym to teach us uh, about who to pray for? And JOY being Jesus first, others second, yourself last. And that's a good help. Uh, I think it mimics uh, John 17 and that other high priestly prayer of Jesus Uh, as he prays for the Father's glory and for the Son to be glorified on the earth. And then he prays for the apostles and the ministry of the Word and Spirit through them. And then he prays for uh, all believers in his church universal. And there's that sense of of, uh, Jesus first, others second, yourself last. There's, There's some of that. But our catechism question expands upon that. And I want you to look on that sheet. Question 183. For whom are we to pray? And and the answer is, and there's a lot of scripture attached to these questions. Uh, They're not there on your sheet, but there, there are a lot of scriptures. We are to pray for the whole church of Christ upon earth, for magistrates and ministers, for ourselves, our brethren, yea, our enemies, and for all sorts of men living or that shall live hereafter, but not for the dead, nor for those who are known to have sinned the sin unto death. Uh, I just want to note uh, that prohibition that's at the end of it, because that's strange to us, I'm sure, uh, to pray for the dead. It's based on a, a 
obscure verse in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, but but uh, it's been elaborated upon within Christendom and especially within Roman Catholic circles of praying for those who have died and in their uh, system of belief about purgatory, uh, that uh, they're dwelling there and you need to pray for them to be delivered. Uh, this is purposely coming to make known that you cannot pray for one who has died. And when we go to funerals, we are not praying for the one who has passed on. We pray for those who are yet in the land of the living and who are confronted with death and who need to know the peace of the gospel and the comforts of God in Christ. Uh, people, when they die, they are judged in that moment of death. They are in eternity. And they are either enjoying the presence of God or the terrors and pains and sufferings of hell. And that is upon death. There is no change that occurs. We are appointed once to die and after judgment. That's the reality. But that whole thing about praying for those who have sinned the sin unto death comes from 1 John 5. And it's talking about not praying for those whose souls are utterly hardened against the Spirit's pleading and have cast God off completely in blasphemous ways. They blaspheme the Holy Spirit in that sense. And it says we are not to pray for them in accordance with what Scripture says. And always when we hear that, uh, of course we need caution because there too we do not know the will of God. But our prayers for such people in that state do take a change. Uh, they are in, in that depth hardened so greatly. Moses had to deal with Pharaoh. And there came a point where Moses said, you are left to yourself. Uh, the same with Judas. Now, last warning at the Lord's table. And then he says, what you're going to do, go do it. And so, that that's there, but we don't know always clearly the end of those things. So, I'm not going to spend any more time on it, but just take note of that. But it does set before us, who do we pray for? And, and I, I just want to touch on three categories that are there. We pray for the church. Start looking at Christ's church. Not, not in this sense specifically individuals within the church. But look at Christ's church. Look at Christ's church in the world. We are uh, His militant people. His kingdom. And in many places in the world where we know the labor of the gospel is going into hostile, hard territories. Pray for the church. Pray for the church that is suffering in those places. I, I have never forgotten this. I read the biography of a minister in Bulgaria from the 1940s and 50s and and when uh, communist Russia came in and took over Bulgaria, uh, this minister was arrested and spent 13 years under torture in a prison camp. 
and it was brutal torture. He he it, it, it was he expresses all the things that he went through, and when he was finally delivered from that and got into Europe and 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 came to North America, he found a church at that time that knew nothing of the suffering church in communist Russia. They weren't even praying. Pray for the church. Subscribe. I uh, just encourage you, if you don't, subscribe to uh, Open Doors or Voice of the Martyrs. Just to gain an understanding of what the church is enduring in the world and pray for her. Pray for her ministers and her officers. Uh, think of this time praying for men who stand and who uh, are ministering uh, as under-shepherds of Christ and who face and perhaps experience more of the attacks and temptations from Satan. And you, you just stop and think of how many ministers in the last decade have fallen into grave sin and caused... Uh, Harm and despair in the church. Pray for the church. Boy, I didn't realize that was so loud. (laughs) Uh, Pray for her kingdom work and her growth. The church in Canada is so small. Man, you could spend an hour just praying for God to do a work of revival in the midst of his congregations. Pray for government and people in general, as it says there, uh, based on 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 2. Uh, all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and, and here's the hard one. And giving of thanks for all men, kings and those in authority. Give thanks for our government. It's hard, isn't it? Uh, and I'll expand a brief a bit in the next item with this, but why do we pray for that? And again, it's the church in mind. In in First Timothy two, Paul doesn't stop there. He says, "Pray in this way with supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks." Why? So that the church may lead a quiet, peaceful, peaceable life in godliness and reverence. Pray, are you cynical about our nation? It's pretty hard not to be, isn't it? We're not quite peaceable and reverent with authority, are we? Begin to pray for them. And you will find, when you pray in this manner, that it's your heart that will become peaceable and reverent even in the face of tyrants. And that same thing with that third category, enemies. Who do we pray for? Pray for our enemies and those who persecute. And Jesus, we know Matthew 5.44 said, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And again, as we're praying for them, we, we can pray all sorts of things for them, but you know what happens? Is whatever Hatred or malice or revenge that may be welling up in our hearts against those who, who are spiteful and, and who persecute us, what happens is we are changed in our countenance towards them. 
pray for them. That's the who. What do we pray for? And again, when you look at question 184, it, it has a prohibition, but look there. Uh, for what things are we to pray? I, I love the catechism. It takes a very conscious, conscientious effort not to end the sentence with a preposition. It's very good that way, but it's, it's a strange way to say it. But for what things are we to pray? We are to pray for all things tending to the glory of God the welfare of the church, our own or others' good, but not for anything that is unlawful. And again here, that, that warning comes out in, in, this, in this question, a prohibition, that be careful in your prayers that you're not praying for anything unlawful. Or if we might add to that, uh, foolish. You think about Jephthah. From the book of Judges, when God called him to go out and lead the armies of Israel in battle against their enemies. And, and he uh, became a bit uh, proud in his prayers uh, because of his station in life. And he just said to God, I will go. And, uh, and God, if you give us victory, I'm going to offer to you the first thing that comes running out of my house. And, and those kind of prayers are rash and foolish. Whereas James would say in, in uh, James uh, chapter 4, uh, prayers that uh, flow from a, a coveting heart, prayers that come from inordinate uh, desires and pleasures and lusts. If I can be very personal. My wife and I, this past week, we celebrated our anniversary, as many of you know, and and uh, after dinner, we, we went for a walk. And one of our things is uh, in, where it starts getting a little darker, we, we go to the mall and walk around the mall. And it's just a good place to get exercise. And as we came out of the mall, right by our car was this lottery ticket. One of those scratch and win ones. And it hadn't been used. Somebody dropped it. Looked around. There was nobody to look to to give it to. So I pick it up. And you know the first thing in my head? Lord, is this a blessing? <laughs> it's tempting, isn't it? It's tempting to desire things that God hasn't given to you. I didn't win anything. It was a complete bust. I was sort of disappointed, but I, I, I'm not as disappointed as the person who spent $5 on the ticket and didn't even get to scratch it. Um, but it was amazing. Like, I, I just thought how quickly I lusted for money. And, and James warns against that. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. It's not for the glory of God. And here we're reminded as the psalmist said, that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And that's a sober warning that we must take. But in this, the what of prayer always in everything for who we're praying is God's glory. And again, consider that with trials, with sufferings, with health infirmities, with persecution. 
God, how can you glorify uh, your name and prosper the gospel of your Son? Your glory is foremost in my desires. And then the church's welfare. Praying for the good of the church with all the troubles and struggles we have with her. It really is hard. I, I will be free to admit this and I hope you will sense this same struggle. It is really hard not to be cynical against churches. It really is hard to look at a church that is growing in leaps and bounds and not step back to say, yeah, but their gospel is faulty. And that's probably true. But instead of praying for the welfare of the church, we hold them at arm's length, don't we? And, and that's where, again, it's our heart that needs to be checked. <laughs> How, uh, in, in what we pray for. And, and it's again, your, your, your prayers can reflect bitterness, scorn, or contempt. But you know, the, the remedy for those things in your heart is to pray for their good. For the prospering of the gospel. For the salvation of souls. Because I can tell you, uh, very few people who are converted to Christianity uh, are converted as Calvinists. (laughs) It's usually a journey in their faith, in that grace of God. But pray. And what you find, again, is that in your prayers for the good and the welfare of the church and her members, that it's your own heart's attitude that gets changed foremost. (laughs) See the body of Christ under oppression and mistreatment, under temptations and false teaching, under schism and division and those tendencies for, for people to be filling their own bellies. See the church in this way and pray for her. Pray for her holiness, for the purity of her faith, for the purity of the gospel and the doctrine. And above all, what was the number one prayer of Christ for His church? Her unity. It does not take long for people to separate themselves from the body of Christ. Oh, how we need to be praying. Praying for the church in this way. I commend to you John 17, Jesus' prayer there in verses 20 to 26. Pray that we stand as one with all our differences, congregation, with all of our ages, with all of our levels of sanctification, pray the Lord makes us one. And, and the last thing, and, and this we learn again from Christ Himself, but how do we pray? And, and here's where we look at question 185, and, and I, would, I would commend this to you with, With some prayerful meditation. How are we to pray? We are to pray with an awful apprehension. That means full of awe. It doesn't mean the modern definition of awful. That it's disgusting and to be cast aside. It means full of awe. 
we are to pray with an awful apprehension of the majesty of God and a deep sense of our own unworthiness, necessities, and sins. With penitent, thankful, and enlarged hearts, with understanding, faith, sincerity, fervency, love, and perseverance, waiting on Him with humble submission to His will. And my friends, that is exemplified by Christ in the garden. Our countenance, our attitude, our zeal in prayer, this is what God is looking at. He sees the heart. It's not hidden from Him. And the foremost thing being reverence. Know who you pray to. You know, again, I believe this is something that really needs to be checked in our day. But it's so irreverent to hear people say, Hey there. And these are Christians. These aren't people who are ignorant of the glory, majesty, and holiness of God. Uh, it used to be, you know, they, they tried to be uh, uh, very pious in, in their understanding of what it meant to cry out, Abba, Father. And you'd, you'd get ministers up there saying, Hey, Daddy. You know, and, and that's not at all what is meant by it. We are coming into the presence and throne room of God. And in reverence, one of the things that God Himself says in one of the prayers, Psalm 46, when He says, when you come to Me, just be still and know that I am God. The Lord Sovereign who who knows all about the circumstances of your life and the circumstances of life here in this world. It's not hidden from Him. And with that reverence, the humility, is as it expresses there, we, we are poor and needy people. We really and truly, in our sin and sinfulness, what is it that we deserve from God? Nothing. And we come in that humility to God. I deserve your wrath. I deserve to be as a one cast into the pit of hell. And yet, as Psalm 40 says, You, Lord, you think on me. Isn't that amazing? And in this humility, we, we cast away presumption in, in that idea that we deserve something better than what we're getting in life. Pray with reverence and humility and gratitude. God's goodness and mercies to you are evident. And God expresses greatly that we are to come into His presence with thanksgiving. It's a marvelous thing to know that God's mercy has met us in Christ. But there's just so much contained within that that our greatest joy before the Lord is thank you for saving me. If I have nothing else from you, O God, I know I have this. And having this, I know I have everything. Because eternity is waiting for me. That countenance of prayer with gratitude. And the thing that God expresses about thankfulness in our prayers is that 
is the preeminent ingredient in our prayers that will calm our heart and mind to know that God is with us in all things. Philippians 4, verse 7. The peace of God will guard your heart and mind. And thankfulness is key to that. And with repentance, we come before God knowing that we have sinned. And coming to God, our need is to receive from Him that cleansing and and that forgiveness. And, And again, that is one of the preeminent parts of our prayer. Father, forgive me. I've sinned. I've sinned even in my trials of not being grateful for the way you're working in my life. I've sinned in my attitudes, my presumption, my discontentment, my ingratitude. But also to pray with faith, reverence, humility, gratitude, repentance. Pray with faith. And that's not just simply believing that God's going to hear and answer your prayers. I think there's a more important aspect of faith that we are to be focused on. And that's from Romans 8.28. I pray knowing God that you are at work in everything for my good. And I trust you. Trust you. That's a heart attitude. Faith is acknowledging God's abilities, God's promises, God's willingness to grant the desires of our heart. But faith is knowing God is always at work for my good in everything. Praise be to Him. And the last that I want to emphasize from this is how to pray. Pray with perseverance. And when we talk about persevering in prayer, we pray till we see the end of our prayer. For Elijah, that took seven times till he saw the cloud appear. (laughs) For Jesus, that took three times till he saw that his betrayer had come. For the widow in the parable, it was persistence until the judge finally brought justice. Do not lose heart in your prayer. Do not presume God has said no because you haven't seen it answered yet. You don't know the end of your prayers until God brings an end to them. You're praying for the soul of of a child to be saved. And as long as that child is living, pray. (laughs) I shared this this morning, uh, this afternoon, that, uh, you know, my first convert in the last church was a 78-year-old woman who grew up in the church. And her parents were godly people who I don't doubt prayed for the salvation of their daughter. And they'd already passed on and they weren't here on earth to see the fulfillment. She was still alive. And the Lord was faithful. Pray. Don't lose heart. Because God's promises are true. Because God is true. <laughs> and you see, that's how the Lord taught us by His life to pray. To pray without ceasing. And this kind of, uh, of prayer life, the who, what, and how we are to prayer. My friends, this is not something we do in our strength. 
This is something we do in the grace of God and in the power of the Spirit. God will give you that strength to pray. Commit yourself to it. The Lord will bring about His glory.